This is the Better Reading Podcast platform with stories behind the story, Jane's Be Better Podcast, my book chat with Caroline Overington and more. Looking for a particular podcast? Remember, you can always skip to it. Welcome to the Better Reading Podcast, stories behind the story, brought to you by Belinda Audio. Listen to Belinda Audiobooks, anywhere, everywhere. Hi, this is Cheryl Arkell for the Better Reading Podcast, stories behind the story. We talk to authors about how they came to tell us their story. Paula Saunders, welcome to Better Reading. Um, Paula grew up in South Dakota. She's a graduate of Syracuse University's creative writing program and was awarded a postgraduate Albert Schweitzer. Is that right? That's right, yes. Fellowship in the Humanities at the State University of New York under the then chair, Tony Morrison. Wow. (laughs) (laughs) Paula lives in California with her husband and they have two grown daughters. Uh, Paula is here today to discuss her debut novel, The Distant Home, an intimate and insightful and heart-rendering portrait of two siblings growing up in the 60s rural America, with one sibling given opportunities the other just misses. At once funny and tragic, it's a story about devotion, neglect, family, and how our parents shape the adults we become. Do you know, Paula, I was very keen to talk to you about this book um, because I come from a large family. I've got four sisters and a brother and we're all very close. But it often, the parent shaping children is something as a subject that particularly is interesting, interesting to me. And I think with The Distant Home, you capture almost every family dynamic. Oh gosh, thank you so much. Well, yeah. thank you. That's wonderful. Um, okay, so let's talk about how you came to write your first fiction novel, because you've been writing for some time, haven't you? I have been writing for a very long time. Yes, yeah. I have. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Had you always wanted to write fiction? No, no, no. Yeah. I wanted to be a dancer. Right. Y- yes. Oh, I, hence I, the ballet. I, yes, yes, exactly. I wanted to be a ballet dancer, and I ended up dancing as an apprentice with Harkness Ballet in New York City. Oh, wow. When I was a young person. Um, and I think I... I I, that's a very long story, and I think I kind of got to the end of that when I was probably 20. And at that point, I had only gone to high school, and I, I didn't, I just kind of not barely finished high school, but I finished high school early and was living in New York City and never had a thought really of going to college. Um, so when I finished dancing, I really didn't know what I was going to do with myself, and there were a number of years where I didn't know what to do with myself. But I ended up starting at a community college, and I did one year there, and I did one year at a university, and then I finished at Barnard College and got my degree there. And it was during that time that I figured out (laughs) that writing was a solace for me. I really, I found writing in, in college. Mm. And it was really the place where I could go and kind of have some peace in myself. And through that, I discovered that my thinking was that writers were smart. And I wanted to be smart. Mm. 
Mm. And I also just loved language and I loved story. So I started do you think taking classes. A, do you think there's a correlation between storytelling, like the storytelling of ballet, I guess, and, and the story? I mean, because mm. there are stories in both, aren't there? There are stories in both, yeah. But I think back then when I was a child, I wasn't, when I was a young person, I wasn't as connected to the stories in ballet. I was very connected to the rigor of ballet. And the technique. And the technique, yes. And yeah. the rigor and technique kind of transfers into the writing yeah. realm, too. So. It's an incredible discipline, isn't it? Physical discipline. It's an incredible discipline in all ways. Yeah. Physical, mental, emotional. It's an incredible discipline. Mm. Um, I'm just going to ask you one question about the ballet shoes. Mm-hmm. Do they hurt all of the time? Well, for me, I have really good feet. You yeah. know, somehow I have feet that are shaped correctly for, for point shoes and for, for ballet oh. shoes. And so I didn't have the same trouble that other girls have. Yeah. But yes, I, I saw many, many bleeding feet in my. It seems torturous time. to me. Yeah. But anyway. Yeah. Um, so where did you grow up? I grew up in uh, Rapid City, South Dakota. Yeah. Um, so where, yeah. <laughs> so where the book is set. Yeah, where yeah. the book is set. I grew yeah. up there in the yeah. Black Hills. Yeah. And, uh, beautiful, beautiful country. It is such a vast and diverse country, isn't it? It is. It's, yeah. It's incredible. We talked, we talked just before we started recording about me visiting. I mean, I've, I, you know, I've been visiting, um, the United States for the last 17 years and I've only seen a minuscule amount of it, you know. Right. Um, but there is so much there. But what strikes me often when I leave, like say San Francisco or leave New York City and go to other cities is how different each city is and sometimes like when I've been to New Orleans I feel that I'm almost in another country yes absolutely that's true we've yeah. we went to Atlanta recently for the first time and to see how people interact in in Atlanta in this incredibly beautiful functional way it's not something you see across the United States it was really informative why um, because I think that different races whites and blacks and and uh, Hispanics just were mixed people and yeah. there was no we didn't really feel any division between the races everyone was just a person in a city doing their thing and accepted like that so there weren't any kind of boundaries that we saw I mean we were just visiting so I don't know the city intimately but mm. it was quite something to mm. see I, I really thought that it was a good role role model for kind mm. of the rest of the United, the United States I don't want to go into politics because I tend to do that and I want to talk more about family but it sometimes when I look at what's happening in the United States now and you look at the landscape and you look at how big it is and how diverse it is, it seems almost impossible to me to agree on one thing. Yes. Because everybody is so different. Yeah, I think that's true. Yeah. I think it is. that's very true. Yeah. It's and just... we have that very strongly in our culture right now. Mm, you do. Yes, we do. Okay. Um, so um, you decided you were going to write. So we're going back to your career path <laughs> and what led you to, to write this book. So tell me about that journey. Um, let's see. I went to graduate school at Syracuse University and um, I started to write stories and I'd been writing before then, but I'd been writing a lot of poetry before then too. But I started to write stories and I think the thing that captured me most in my imagination was what I'd been through in my childhood. And the people I knew and knew intimately and deeply. And that sat with you for a very long, because this book has come late. Yes. Yes. Oh, the book has come very late. Yeah. 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 I mean, I graduated from 
uh, graduate school probably 33 years ago. So it's come very late. And was that the story you think you're always going to tell? Yes, I do. I think this is the story that I have to tell because this is kind of where I have sunk my emotional weight you know, is in, in my family and trying to figure out as a microcosm for other families and, and larger dilemmas, kind of what, what is it in a family that makes it go wrong when you do love each other so much and you do care for each other so much? How do those things happen? That's been really interesting to me all the way through. It is interesting. I often think with parents, um, and you know, there are so many different families and, you know, I, I mean, my parents are Lebanese, um, Australia. Well, they, they were Lebanese and they came to Australia in the fifties. So we were immigrants here. And I remember very early on when I was very young, is he going into other people's houses? Um, and mainly Australian, white Australian houses. And it was very different for me because, um, you know, in our house, you know, there, there were six children, two adults that sat down to a meal at, all at the same time. And that wasn't happening from what I could see. But what I could see was how different family styles were. Now, when I look at it as an adult or when I remember it as an adult, it's probably parenting style. Mm-hmm. But as a child, I thought, oh, well, they're allowed to go to bed later or they're allowed to watch TV more than I'm allowed to watch TV. Right. And you kind of pick up the dynamics of diversity in family, don't you? Yes, you do. You yes, do. you definitely do. Yeah. And some of it's cultural. Some of it is... I remember in my teenage years, a lot of my girlfriends having trouble with their parents. And I remember reading something somewhere, it says, they do the best that they can. Right, yes. What do you think of that? Mm, That's a very good question. I might have to think about that a little bit. Because, you know, it's the kind of question that, like so many, it's like so many things. Yes, they do the best that they can, but yes, they need to do better. You know, there, there's a kind of yes on both parts there. Like, I believe my parents did the best that they could do. And that's kind of what the book is about, that's actually. Right. But on the other hand, we as a people have to have more understanding and have to do better. We have to do better than that. We can't shut off a, whatever we see as the bottom part of our population, which is kind of what happened as in a microcosm in my family. And which is kind of happening in a macro way in my country. So we can't shut off the bottom part of our population. Why do you think they did that? Um, well, I actually think it was uh, cultural pressures. I really do. Because I think there's so much cultural pressure in the, in the American, in the United States for people to succeed. There is. There, do you know that's starting here? It's a different it way is. of thinking. Yeah. It is a different way of thinking, and it's yeah. it's a terrible way of thinking. It's mm-hmm. such a destructive way of thinking, and there is so much pressure. And I think my parents felt that for themselves, even and back they then. learned it. Pardon? Even back then. Even back then. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And they learned it from their parents, and and I think then we learned it from our parents. And there's all of this pressure to excel and to succeed, and you understand the concern, because if you're if you're in a culture where you either succeed or you fail, and you are failing, that's yeah. a problem for you. Mm-hmm. And so your parents are pushing you to try to not do that, but then that creates a system. Yeah. I just wonder sometimes too, um, with changing times, we measure success and failure quite differently. And 
I've I've been listening to a couple of American podcasts and I've noticed like the Silicon Valley mentality and you know I mean particularly mm-hmm. I've been listening um, to uh, the story of Elizabeth Holmes and how do you know about I her? I don't. Sorry, she's the young woman that tried to. She was mimicking um, Steve Jobs, and she there was a fraud around. Right. Yeah, yes. a pinprick. I, I can't. Theranos was the company she right. started, right. but it was the mentality was, you know. Just to make money and That's to make right. millions, of, and she she managed to raise yeah. five six billion dollars, you know, yeah. and success in that environment is measured by that. That's right. Yeah. That's right. And that I think is really scary, isn't it? It's really scary, and it's such a violent system. You know, it's such a violent system. That's when a you, good word. It's a very good word because that's what it is, and that's what I'm really trying to trace in this book is where does this seed of violence, where does it originate, where does it come from? And to me, it comes from our families. We learn it in our families. And how else do we accept the violence that goes on in our country and the violence that we inflict on those who actually need us, like immigrants, you know, like underclass, like people who need health care. How do we accept the violence that we inflict on them as as a country? Well, I think we learn in our family to both to tolerate that kind of violence and also to propagate it. So... There we are. I think one of the plights um, that's going that history well, there's going to be many, but where history is going to look at us so unfavorably was the children removing the children from their parents oh. at the border. Oh, what a horror! It is almost unimaginable it, that it, it is. somebody thought of that. Oh, oh. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. Anyway, oh. <laughs> let's not go there. I can't. But, you know, I just can't. making reference to behaviors and oh, violence. It's, that is got to be the word, one of the and, worst. And so how do the American people tolerate it? Yeah. How do we tolerate it? I don't know. It, it just seems everything seems out of our hands. We're yeah. ruled by these people now because we have put our faith in a monetary economy instead of a human economy. We don't see... I love your language. Oh, thank you so much. That is so true. (laughs) Yeah, it's true. It's true. true. You know, I read a beautiful essay just recently by Wendell Berry called Two Economies. And it talks about, I, I couldn't believe it because he's talking about these two different kinds of economies. And one is the natural economy set up by nature where we understand the value of that what is around us the nature and the animals and the plants and the human beings and and you know all of their um you know influences and interactions and the other is the commercial monetary economy which doesn't understand or take into account any of those things yes that's right and you know i have i have an an illustration that i've thought of that i really love and that is that you know if you were writing if you're right-handed and you're yeah. writing with your right hand. So your right hand does all the work in your right hand yeah. and writes all the. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a, it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? 
For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Checks. It doesn't mean you'd let your left hand wither. And that's because we understand the integrity of the physical body. We understand it intuitively because your right hand is doing the work. You don't let your left hand die. It doesn't make any sense. But we don't understand the integrity of our cultural system. We don't understand the integrity of a country even or the world. So we're in this situation. It's about tolerance. I often think, you know, when people... um, I was at a dinner party and uh, I, I sat down, it was my sister's birthday and I sat down to, next to this woman and in this country our tolerance for immigration is as bad as yours and she started talking about the fact that these people need to, um, uh, to get into this country should join the queue. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you've mm-hmm. heard that term. Mm-hmm. It's I so upsetting. Yes. And I picked up my plate and I thought, I can't do this. I have to move. I can't sit through this dinner and listen to this dross. And then I was berating myself afterwards thinking, is that lack of tolerance on my behalf as well? (laughs) Because I feel as though you can't get them over the line. And I also feel as though it's, I don't know, I just give up sometimes. But we're all raised, you know, going back to family, you know, we're all raised in an, hopefully in an environment where you have, you know, you have care and you have shelter and you have food and whatever. And I sometimes think even in one family, you can get the diversity of, you know, conservatism and liberalism and whatever. And I, I, I often wonder how that happens. Like my niece, Rebecca, has two children um, and they are one six and one's ten and they I mean, at this stage, they're just so completely different. Yeah. <laughs> How does that happen in family? Oh, I have no idea. We have two daughters too, and they're both very different. They, yeah. they have their own qualities. Yeah. You know, um, and my husband and I kind of have. Do you wonder? Well, we have, we're kind of Buddhist, you know, so yeah. we think that people are really born with qualities that they're carrying forward. Yeah. You know, everyone has their life that they have to live through and work on and learn from and grow yeah. with. And yeah. so, yeah, people do have their own qualities. You see it in children for sure. Yeah. yeah. Um, and do you think, and getting back to this distant home, so you as parents, were you more critical of that given your upbringing? Were you in more our children? Well, more oh. self-aware as, oh. as a mom. Oh, absolutely, yes. Talk to me about that. Well, I think that one of the reasons this book was so long in coming out was because I was very focused during those years in building a family that I wanted to be a part of. And I didn't want to be a part of a family like my own, where there was a division between those who have certain qualities and those who have different qualities. Yeah. You know, I didn't want that. I I wanted there to be a kind of respect and admiration even for each person's qualities. Yeah. So that took some doing. I didn't have an example. Do you know, I think it's taught. I was was speaking to um, an Australian painter called Ben Quilty recently and we were talking about empathy and he was talking about his own children and he said that... Sometimes people think that just comes naturally, but it's not, it doesn't. No, 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 it doesn't come naturally. It's a lot of work. Yeah. You know, I mean, it is, it is the work of being a good parent. Yeah. Actually. 
yeah. And did you have your upbringing in the back of your mind in terms of, well, I mean, I guess it's not a daily thought, but it's there, isn't it? No, I always have my upbringing in the front of my mind, actually. My upbringing is, was, was very, um, traumatic actually for me and I feel like you know that's always influencing I think what what I do and influencing me both positively and 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 negatively so there are things my upbringing is something I have to work with yeah, yeah. it's interesting because they say that very often you know um, if you go to the extreme cases that children that are uh, uh, abusers were abused and you know that the, the, it goes down the line and it's very difficult for people to break a cycle mm-hmm. but you need to be conscious of it, don't you? You need to, to be. It. You need to be very conscious of it. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, some people have said the book is kind of dark. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Which you it know, has, okay, it, it has yeah. dark qualities. Yeah. But I think that's part of it. You know, mm. to to see what you need to do first, you have to see it. And yeah. if to look at it isn't as nice as you would like it to be, then maybe it's worthwhile looking. You yeah. Know? I feel that way. Yeah. Um, and to do things differently, I guess you have to reflect, don't you? It has to be. There. I do think so. Yeah. Um, so it's been likened to Franzen, to Jonathan Franzen, um, and it's. I think um, for me, it was very American. Very. Would you agree? Oh yes, what I makes would. It that I, um, I was trying to describe I, that to I somebody wonder. the other day. What, yeah. what makes it that? What makes it American? Well, I think one of the qualities that we've been talking about, this idea of, you know, the violence of, um, you might call it ambition or the struggle to succeed. I think that makes it American. And it's the struggle to succeed over the landscape, over the populations of the landscape, over each other. It just continues. It just is a continual cycle. That's a very American piece of psyche, Mm. I think. Mm. And um, the other thing I think that makes it very American is the landscape. Yeah, the landscape, definitely, by far. And your descriptions of the landscape are beautiful. And I guess for me, uh, the descriptions of the landscape were more peaceful. Oh, much more, yes. Yeah, and did you do that deliberately? Like that we needed, as a reader, I needed some respite? Um, No, I take refuge in the landscape, even now. If I go, if I go on vacation, I have all pictures of the landscape. <laughs> it's very embarrassing. No I go, humans in it. <laughs> no humans. Isn't that terrible? I know I do that. I don't know why, except yeah. I do take a lot of refuge in, in landscape. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Oh, well, you can certainly see how visual it is. Okay. So I want to come, come to how you then started writing. Like, mm-hmm. so you've had the idea. You've been thinking about it a long time. Mm-hmm. You're raising two children mm-hmm. and you're probably working. Um, did, off and on? Off and on. And, yeah. and well, actually, do you know, I wrote these stories, um, some of them in, not some of these, but similar, in graduates, in graduate school. Oh, wow. Yes. As a matter of fact, uh, when Toby Wolf came to dinner one night, he said, Oh, I recognize some of those stories oh, from wow. a workshop. Wow. So, yeah, so some, this material, it wasn't the same stories, but this material is, has followed me from way back then. So you've been working on it that long? I've been working on it, you know, that yeah. long. I wrote it actually as a novel at one point. I wrote it as a book of short stories at one point, And then I stopped writing for a number of years, uh, at least 10 years. Why? Um, I think because I was very interested in Buddhist practice and also because of the frustration of writing for me at that point I was I had I had done a lot of writing and I had gotten very far with it but I wasn't finding my way over the hump 
into publishing and I had the two girls to focus on, I just felt a little overwhelmed and I wanted yeah. to quiet myself down yeah. and kind of think about things in a little different way than using the material to, to once again succeed at something. I was kind of, I think, trying to get rid of that formula for yeah. myself. Yeah. And it took a long time and, and I actually did a lot of, you know, meditation practice and we've had like, yeah. wonderful instruction around that and then when it came time to go back to thinking of writing about writing again there I was again and I didn't even look George said you know can I bring something up from the basement I've got all because he saves everything of mine I never save anything he's like I've got it all I'm like no do not I don't want to even see it I want to start now I don't want to start back then so you didn't use the old material never never looked at it oh wow yeah so tell me a lot of our listeners are aspiring writers tell me what was it, how you started the project like was it I'm going to do this now oh uh, yeah I sat down and I started writing something and you know there was something wonderful that really happened around that time and that was that a friend of mine named Claire Shipman came um, came out with an article in the Atlantic Mm, called something about competition. Oh, I'm sorry, I'm going to forget the name. But in it, she talked about the difference between men and women and how, oh no, it was called the confidence gap. Right. So, okay, so it was the difference between I'm how... I kind of looked that up. Yes. Yeah. The difference between how men and women approach things and how yeah. women approach it from the point of view of having to perfect it first. And men approach things from the point of view of oh, they've done a great job, and if they haven't, they'll do it better later, and they'll figure it out. Absolutely. Yeah, and so, you know, she said in an NPR interview that women need to overcorrect for confidence. And I used that phrase all the way through writing this book. If Wait, I, can you say that again? Yes, over, women need to overcorrect for confidence. Overcorrect, right. not just correct. Wow. Overcorrect for confidence. Yeah. yeah, I like that. Yeah, I loved it. So um, I used that. It's a that. penny drop moment, isn't it? Yes, it was. Yeah. Yes, yeah. So then when I'd write something and I'd be unhappy with myself and what I'd done, I would say, nope. Yeah. No, I'm going to overcorrect. I did great. I did my work. It's fantastic. If it needs changing, I'll come back tomorrow. Yeah. Yeah, and it got me through that period of needing to get started. Yeah, that's really fantastic, isn't yeah. it? That's great advice. Yes, it is. And it's about keeping going. It's about keeping going. Yeah, right. and sitting down and actually doing the work, isn't it? Right, and not prejudging and not judging yourself so and, harshly. Yeah, and always my mind wanders because I've got four sisters. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> what am I... What are people going to think? What are my sisters yes. going to think? Yes. What are my friends going to think? Exactly. What are my family going to think? Exactly. I don't think men think about that much. No, I don't think so either. <laughs> no, uh, no, I don't think no. so. Okay, so when you started writing, did it flow? Did, I mean... Mm, yeah, yeah, it did, it did. And yeah. yet all the pages that were flowing so nicely in the end got cut. So <laughs> it doesn't matter. <laughs> yeah. And, it, you know, it yeah, went like that. It went like that. Okay, so how long did that process take? About five years. Yeah, wow. I worked on the book for about five years. Okay. Yeah. Um, and then when you were finished, how were you confident? Like, you know, sometimes when you speak, not that I speak to actors, when I see actors being interviewed, um, they will tell you there's a mood in a film that they knew that it was going to be good and, you know, right. something was going right. Did you feel that with this book versus, say, other times when you've attempted? 
Um, no, not necessarily. No. no, no, no. As a matter of fact, when I thought I was finished the first time, I sent it to um, Toni Morrison to, for reading. She'd offered to read. Wow. And so, yeah, yeah, so she read and got. I, I thought it was finished, and she got back to me with an email that was maybe five or six sentences only. And by reading that email, I understood that what I needed to do was switch this 300-plus page book from first person to third person. Yes, and so that was that was another year of work for me. And wow. and it, you know, it, I was just like, oh my I god, just I just can't. can't even fathom. Right, I was like, I can't do it. I can't do it. I can't do it. And so then I started labeling all my drafts experiment one, experiment two, experiment five thousand. You know, it was just yeah. it just went on like that. I was doing it as an experiment. Like, can this be done? And it was the best thing I ever did when I switched it to third person, and it started to pick up momentum, then I started to feel like, oh yeah, this can be good. And then I sent it back to Toni Morrison to read after, and she was just, she's like, I'm very excited. So that was really <gasps> wow, nice. Yeah, that fantastic. was really nice. Yeah. Well, you know, I mean, she does, <laughs> she's experienced. And she's an editor. To, oh, and she's an editor. Well, she was an editor, an editor at Random House for many years before oh, okay. she wrote I did her not, first book. I did book. not know yeah. that. Yeah, yeah. so she's go. an experienced editor, so to hear it from her was really yeah. heartening. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was very yes. good advice. Yeah. Well, congratulations, Paula. Um, Thank you very it's, much. It's, the book is called The Distance Home. It's a really um, fabulous debut. Congratulations. Thank you and so much. a wonderful read. Thank you, and thank you for having me on your pleasure. show today. Thank you. Absolute pleasure. If you'd like more information about Better Reading, follow us on Facebook or visit betterreading.com.au. This podcast is proudly sponsored by Belinda Audio. Belinda Audiobooks are available on CD and MP3 from online booksellers and bookshops everywhere, or you can download from Audible, Google Play, or the iBookstore. We've also created our own app called BorrowBox that's available from both the App Store and Google Play. All you need to do to get it working is to download the app, join your local public library, and you'll gain access to the world's best collection of e-books and e-audiobooks available for you to loan on your phone or your personal device. Belinda, we're here to enable you to escape, imagine, grow, and be inspired through the power of storytelling. Belinda Audiobooks. Anywhere. Everywhere. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. 
Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. If you enjoyed this podcast, leave us a review and check out the other podcasts on the Better Reading Network.